Hello, everybody. This is Zach, host of I am EM Weekly. Uh, not I am Weekly. EM Weekly. Uh, you know who? You know what you're listening to. Uh, I am joined today by Brandy May. Uh, Brandy has a very interesting background. Uh, emergency manager to lawyer. Uh, and her, the reason she made that transition is primarily what we're going to talk about today. Uh, you may have seen her down in Savannah. She happens to be, uh, you know, a local there. It was at IAM. Um, this was her first uh, trip, so we might talk a little bit about her experience at the IAM conference. But most of all, like, we're going to be talking about um, her DEI work, um, and I will let her kind of talk about that. But Brandy, thank you for joining me, and um, I'm I'm just really pumped to talk about this uh, today. Zach, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking. I uh, love the I love social media. Sometimes it connects people <laughs> that otherwise would never find each other. I have had uh, I've I've been whiplashing back and forth uh, with social media in the last like 48 hours. I've had some like great interactions and just some absolutely confounding interactions. But it can be a force for good at a, on occasion, and uh, it can also be this uh, endless cesspool abyss where you just waste your time trying to talk to a wall. But we're going to take a quick break with some words from our sponsors. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. Instinct Ready Kits are awesome. Compact, fully loaded, and easy to place around your office, school, campus, warehouse, wherever. I keep a quick pack in my vehicle and one at home. Imagine Instinct Ready, fully loaded, stop the bleed kits in every school and office. Get Instinct Ready Kits and training at instinctready.com. In this sense, it actually went really, really well. And the reason, so I actually think we've been connected through like LinkedIn for quite a while because um, I've seen a lot of your posts. Uh, I'm I, I like to keep my network pretty broad, especially because uh, there's a lot of like different aspects of emergency management that we as emergency managers can lose sight of. Like uh, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to see the forest through the trees. So having that broad network and lots of experience, you come across stuff and. The conversations that I think I came across uh, recently that sort of spurred conversation uh, was specifically um, around uh, DEI. And this is, uh, if you want to sort of just define that, and, and then we can talk about like why you can define it so well, you know, what your background is. But what is DEI? DEI at its very definition is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, that's the definition is those three things. Um, and I think when when you're defining it with other groups or when you're defining it in terms of an organization or some sort of structure, I think establishing a common definition is is going to be important because <clears throat> the definition and what it means kind of tertiarily is going to be different for everybody. Um, or it may even have um, connotations um, with political background or, you know, political undertones. And so I think establishing a common definition is, is step number one for anything that you do, like you just did. But yeah. considerations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think uh, probably a lot of emergency managers are starting to pick up on this. Uh, unfortunately, it's 2023. This is not like this is a new problem, but it, it does seem to be much more clearly defined. Like literally there is a definition now. Um, and what, and in fact, uh, I hadn't known it, I hadn't known DEI as a, as a sort of subject specifically until 
probably the last year, it's sort of like really specifically has started to pop up in conversations that I've had with other emergency managers. And that's not to say that um, the sort of tenets of it have not existed for a long time, but uh, it's always like been a secondary conversation, right? You're talking about evacuation, you're talking about mass notification, you're talking about planning for vulnerable populations. And it's always, it's always- kind of only come up in access and functional needs until the last few years really is where I've seen the chatter kind of come out of the access and functional needs annexes and into the other um, parts of emergency management. Which is uh, like almost, (laughs) I mean, it's not almost, it's kind of disturbing that it's like, you know, we're gonna annex this as like a special problem that we will address when we can. It's, It's never like, um, sort of the forefront. And, and before we started recording, the conversation that we were having is just like, as emergency managers, I think a lot of us were aware that we had responsibilities. I don't think most people know they have uh, a huge amount of legal responsibility and, and there's a lot of liability in that. Not just like, we should be doing it because like it's the humanitarian thing to do. We, we should be caring for every single member of our community or constituency, whatever you want to call it, our area of responsibility. Um, but even if for some reason you can't bring yourself in that altruistic approach to want to help those folks, like you have a legal responsibility to uh, support folks uh, who need maybe uh, extra support or to communicate in ways that is better understood and, and all of this stuff that sort of like exists in that. That's just the functional need stuff, but understanding your populations and how people interpret information and all of this other stuff that we have to do. This is not just a nice to have and like to pat yourself on the back if you can, you know, solve one little piece of this. This is something that in the event of an emergency, all of your community should be getting everything that they need in order to make decisions and and get, you know, be safe and, and everything else. And that I believe is sort of where you transition from your emergency manager world into your your current position. And maybe you could talk about uh, what you did and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I um, I always tell people, if you look at my LinkedIn, and it looks like a labyrinth, or a, you know, <laughs> game or a, you know, a mouse find the cheese game. But, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago, my career started in the Army as a journalist in public affairs. Um, after that, uh, I did journalism, print journalism for a while, army contractor, et cetera. And then I transitioned naturally into public relations and marketing. Yeah. That's the natural journalists go to PR. Yeah. And right around the kind of rise of the 24-7 news cycle and um, social media algorithms, I started to develop an interest and in kind of a specialty in crisis PR which is um, I've always had this love for when there's a crisis, like, let me try to solve the puzzle. So it went into crisis PR. And then um, I got hired as the lead PIO for the state of Georgia's emergency management agency. That's like crisis um, (laughs) 1000. Yeah, you guys have like a couple disasters down there every once in a while. Exactly. Um, And you know, to go back a little bit, I'm from deep south Louisiana, south of New Orleans. So like my whole life is like Hurricane Andrew and all of the hurricanes. And so I get hired at GEMA. And um, of course, that's, again, crisis comms, 10,000. But I really started to love emergency management, not just the comms, but as a whole and the interconnectedness of it. 
Um, and I'm a natural learner. I love to learn. So I, through that, I started taking all the classes and got certified as an emergency manager in Georgia and became a post instructor because I'm like, oh my God, this is full. Let me teach the world. We all go in. We were like, once you're in, like you touch the water, you're like, I can't leave. I'm in. Exactly. I'm in. Um, but through the kind of the PR, crisis PR, um, you know, ESF 15, PIO work, I noticed a recurring theme with crisis with organizations, which is when the proverbial shit, sorry, Zach, is hitting the fan. Beep. <laughs> exactly. The two people at the table with a, a director or, you know, a CEO is your PR person and yeah. your lawyer. Those are the two people. <laughs> It's always those two people. And nine times out of 10, in my experience, the lawyer is going to win. Their advice is what is going to win. And there's a few reasons for that that I can speculate, but legal and law seems to be scarier. And legal and law, you can put usually kind of a, a cap on dollar figure amount. Yeah. So if I'm sitting at the table with a lawyer as a PR person, I can go, you know, this is a really bad idea. CEO says, well, how much will it cost me? And I'll go, I don't know. Um, <laughs> like that's, I mean, I can make some best guesses based on, um, you know, case studies, but I, you don't know how the court of public opinion yeah. is going to act. Meanwhile, a lawyer can say, okay, you would be liable for this, for this, for this. And, you know, in this state and in this, it might cost you a million dollars. I'm just making sure. Yeah. So I, it just made it really hard to have the leverage to, you know, mediate and handle those conversations um, and to be able to come at the situation with some tangibles so that directors and agency leaders could make informed decisions that weren't guided by fear or numbers. Um, and so I was like, what do lawyers have that I don't have? I don't know. Let me go <laughs> find out. <laughs> and so I went to law school um, and I just got licensed a few months ago, graduated. I went to law school at 40, at almost 40, because I, I could just see the trend of, you know, the liability and the need for, you know, the only lawyers that I ever had access to in emergency management were usually the administrative agency lawyers, and they're there for the higher up. Right. They're not there for the ESF worker bees. And I love all y'all. I've been y'all. That is not a derogatory statement. That's not my intent here. Um, but those sorts of legal questions and having someone to ask it to is not available, you know, unless you go into, you know, the command staff room yeah. and go, can I talk to a lawyer? And the lawyer might be at the governor's office, like not available. So, um, but I could see the 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 lack of knowledge and the lack of ability for for leaders, even just ESF leads, to know what those impacts were and to be able to use that knowledge to protect lives and property. Like I'm, I guess it's my army background, and I'm a mom to four. But it was like my job. I've always felt my job was to save lives first. Like I don't care about your politics and your lawsuits. We need to go save somebody's life. Well, that's a super interesting. So I think a lot of people who are listening in their experience, and I'm going to speak for me personally, um, when legal gets involved, they're usually the one telling you, like, don't do this, right? Like, versus, like, it sounds like because of your experience, you could be like, no, do it. But here's how to do it in a way that is, like, going to protect you. It's going to protect them. 
you can still get the job done, but like, let's not be stupid about it. Like, you know, and I think maybe that's like the huge advantage. Well, like, don't be dumb say, in your response. We're always like, nope, don't do that. I mean, <laughs> we're so risk averse, um, just like emergency managers. And you're absolutely right. There's that that hurdle of like, okay, I don't necessarily just want to be told no or why you're telling me no, but how? here's what I need to do. So how can we take the no and... And Make it a maybe? Yes, <laughs> liability. Okay, yeah, that's a better one. Uh, and then, so uh, the other thing that uh, I think probably a lot of folks uh, may know you, and this is what's actually like even more sort of impressive. So you're a relatively new IEM member. You did a uh, EM vision talk on um, the six most dangerous, I think it's the the sort of like business size, the six most dangerous words in business, uh, which is we've always done it this way. Um, and I was, uh, it's funny cause I, I, I did not go this year. This is like the year I really wanted to go, but there was like too much going on. Uh, so my boss, John went and that was actually his first time, but, uh, your talk was one of the ones that I was actually really interested in seeing because I want to burn the whole system down. <laughs> like I want to like try to start over because I felt like, uh, coming up in this world, it's so sort of like. In the, the old culture and structures is so embedded that it's like really hard sometimes to feel like you can move the needle in a positive way. Um, and and the, there's also folks who have no desire to move the needle in, in, the, in the right way or, or to move it at all. Um, and so having the conversations of, uh, about like, this should not be done this way or we can do better, which is a more aspirational way of saying it, uh, I think is really, really sure. important. And um, in your conversation, um, and maybe uh, I th we'll, we'll try to figure out if there's some way we can share that talk for other folks to get out there, but uh, it, you're, the stuff that you're talking about are like fundamental issues in emergency management that I think we've continued to, to kick down the road. And maybe just talk about like what prompted that talk and sort of like what you intend to do? Like, is that your starting point? Is that your midpoint? Like, where do you feel like this conversation is? Sure. Um, so the first iteration of, we'll say that talk. Yeah. Um, but that topic came through EMAG, which is Emergency Management Association of Georgia. Um, their conference last year, um, which was in April, and I was, I wasn't a speaker, but I was, um, I did one of the breakout sessions and it was called Six Most Dangerous Words in Emergency Management. And they happened to schedule it during the part of the conference where the emergent, the county emergency managers were meeting with the, the GEMA director. There's a part where they all kind of go off and caucus, if you would. So I wasn't expecting a whole lot of people to show up. And there were other breakouts during that yeah. time. And it was standing room only in that room. Now, in fairness, the room is not that big, but it <laughs> meant about 120 to 150 people. I, that's pretty room. impressive. Like, Georgia's a big state, but that's a lot of emergency management people in any space. So that's that's good. I, I was shocked because I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to have a chat with like 10 people. And, <laughs> you know, people just filed in. And, and it was more of like a, a teaching slash presentation, but my presentation style is always, and teaching style is always interactive. I am not a death by PowerPoint. I'm a, hey, here's a, here's a bullet, let's chat about it. And so it was a really, really informative, even for me, session. But I went at it with such a way, like my own vulnerability first. So I am autistic. I have other, I have ADD, ADHD, PTSD, 
If you fix some acronyms and pull them out of a half, I have it. Um, and I also have some physical limitations and disabilities. Um, I have four children. Um, some of them, like their father, is, um, is part of what would be considered a minority population. So I have three brown children, if you would, even though their skin color is lighter. So even though I look like a privileged cis white woman with a law degree, if you look at me, you wouldn't know all of this other stuff. And so certain presumptions through the conversation were even made about me. And I'm very self-aware of that. Um, so the conversation was enlightening for me, but I got a lot of feedback afterward of like, wow, like you really need to yell this from the rooftops. And I was like, well, okay, let me go climb to a rooftop. Then I got the emails that IAEM was coming and I was, you know, in there like, be a speaker, teach a breakout session. I was like, I'm going to go big because literally <laughs> the conference center, the convention center is if I could swim against this current, I would be here in five minutes because it's right across from where I live. So I was like, I'm going to go big. Let me see if I can turn this topic into an EM vision talk that would, you know, check their boxes for, you know, whatever they were looking for. And surprisingly, I was selected as one of the, I think, five or six of us. And so I turned it into, um, you know, a seven minute talk, like a TED talk style presentation. Um, and it and just kind of conveyed the message, but put myself at the forefront. Like, would y'all guess that I'm autistic? No. Would you guess that I'm disabled? Also, no. Would you guess that I have any idea about what it's like to, and I am absolutely white and uh, my children are, you know, mixed between myself and their father, but would you, the, the inherent biases that exist with people, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with people, this is cultural, Yeah, is nobody would have guessed any of that. And so I think the, the, the topic and the conversation mixed with they had to face their own inherent biases. Listening to me say it, I think, um, really resonated. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges in this conversation is that people have to admit uh, that they are are uh, that they. They can't understand other folks' perspectives that they may have bad sort of perspectives. Like, I mean, there's some people who just have like, they're wrong. Like they just have like truly prejudice and, and you know, uh, malice towards people that are different from them. But I think even the good folks, uh, you know, who are not intentionally ignoring populations or ignoring um Nobody sort wants of to admit that they have racist yeah, thought processes yeah. or list thought processes i mean that's or that they're part of a system that that that's sort of built into which is i think like maybe why people are were so excited about this is like i think everyone inherently has that knowledge like we know that we can always do better um and sometimes like it takes someone to be like this isn't we can't just accept that we're failing here. Like we have to like stand. I mean, this is actually, I think what, uh, you know, uh, police departments around the country need to do right now. They're facing the same thing. Like we can't just accept that there's systematic issues here. This has to be faced head on. Uh, emergency management, I think has been able to skate by for a very long time. Like, uh, like we were talking about as like, well, we have I'm the afraid, annex. Though. Yeah. There are things that I've seen in the last few years that now that I have the lawyer hat that I'm like, 
like <laughs> sad, but usually the wake up calls come when there's a lawsuit or, you know, and I think um, Hurricane Ian, some of the things that I saw there and I didn't dig too deeply. Oh, yeah. I'm just headline based. I'm like, there is a reckoning coming for this industry if people don't do better. Yeah, so I, I'll I'll give some of uh, some real quick perspective, uh, just sort of how I was faced with this. Uh, so I, I've been an emergency manager in a lot of different roles and different levels. I came into sort of the the DEI aspect of of my experience started really in higher education uh, for for a number of reasons. Uh, one is there's a much higher bar in higher education right now um, due to uh, a number of different regulations that basically require you to uh, you know alert students to emergencies and communicate uh, threats on campus and stuff. It's a higher standard than like a, a typical emergency manager has. There's also a lot more built into the Department of Education and other sort of like granting bodies and all this other stuff we're supposed to be taking into consideration. What I realized is, of course, all these regulations are there. When we tried to put it into practice, it became really, really challenging for, for numerous reasons. One is uh, lack of resources, uh, lack of funding, um, trying to, you know, swim against the tide that is like really overwhelming because there's, there's so many sort of challenges and failures on our part that like when you're trying to like figure out like well where do i even begin to try to fix this it's like almost impossible and like most people i'm like well i guess i'll just chip away at it where i can but uh even in the conversation we've had uh bef before this when we were talking about this like that a is is not enough and you know of course like we're, we're all limited in our in our own bandwidth and capacity to actually solve this but the reality is there's a massive massive liability um and there like you said there will be a legal reckoning and and you know i think people are just starting to discover this and unfortunately most people don't know it till it's way too late but we have to be leaning into this this should be like one of our highest priorities uh because a again it's that it's you know these the, the people that we are failing are the ones that we should be leaning into and helping the most um, because that is like the humanitarian side of our mission, right? Like is to ensure equitable care and uh, investment and um, effort. And we just don't, like for whatever reason, we don't. And if we can't do that with the carrot, which is the good thing. Like we're doing this because we want to do it as good people. Then we need to start leading with the stick, which is if you don't do it, there will be liability. So maybe chat like just a little bit about like what what is that liability? Like how how maybe maybe even how emergency managers can use this as a way to sort of like do more in that area. Sure. So um, like any good lawyer, a couple of disclaimers first, this is not legal <laughs> advice. Um, I am only licensed in the state of Georgia. Um, I am not familiar with the laws everywhere, USA or every city, USA. So that's very broad. But um, I think that as a profession and we can kind of look to the public safety, to the law enforcement right now to, to understand what I'm about to talk about, which is we as a profession have sat under this kind of blanket of comfort for a really long time because our decisions and our actions are usually protected by sovereign or qualified immunity for the most part. You know, like you are 
doing your job, you are immune. And nine times out of 10, your emergency managers and your agencies are not going to know if a lawsuit has been filed against them. It'll be intercepted by your city or county attorney and handled accordingly with leadership. You know. But there is law, negligence theory that um, this is not to be scary, but if a lawyer like me, who's a plaintiff side attorney, you know, let's say you came to me, Zach, and you said, hey, um, during disaster XYZ or based on these plans, I am a um, disabled person and those plans um, didn't, you know, account for me and I was injured. You know, like I lost my house, um, I lost my mobility devices, you know, I lost my accessible vehicle, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, I've suffered harm because of the actions or the inaction of these people. At that point, it becomes a liability. There's, you know, because emergency managers have a duty, the basic theories of negligence are, um, you know, duty, you have a duty as an emergency manager, you breached that duty. The breach of that duty caused the harm, and that harm cost somebody something, life, property, whatever. That's your basic negligence theories. And one of the first things that is looked at when evaluating a negligence claim is, did that entity know or should they have known that this was a threat? So is ignorance bliss or huh? <laughs> is ignorance bliss? No, it is not because a part of negligence, it doesn't have to be a breach of duty or knew or should have known. There's also a part of negligence theory that's deliberate indifference. And that can Oof. catch you. Yes. Oof. That one, that sounds painful. I, I that, one gave, that one just sent a shiver up my spine. Yes. Deliberate indifference is a way to to bring a, a, a legal action under a negligence theory. Um, and so it's not enough to be like, well, we didn't know. Well, you should have, or people tried to tell you and you deliberately were indifferent to it. That, you know, it's kind of like, I tell you your tire is flat, you know. And you're like, you know what? I'm not gonna pay attention to that tire today because I'm, I'm just gonna be indifferent. I'm not gonna pay attention to it. You get on the road, you cause a car crash. I mean, again, these are very general analogies. You were deliberately indifferent. It, it didn't matter, you know, if you didn't know that it also affected the rim, you were deliberately indifferent to yeah. the thing. Yeah, and so I think this also sort of uh, inherently leads to a conversation about the population of emergency managers as well. So when we're talking about diversity, uh, equality, inclusion, uh, and just having this equitable sort of workforce. Uh, for a long time, I think, I mean, there, there's, you can go to the, to any conference and look around the room and it's, it's largely uh, white dudes, like, you know, like, so when, when we're trying to sort of- Probably over the age of 50. Probably, yeah, because a lot of it uh, for the, I used to joke, when I first uh, started doing emergency management, I was in college, and I remember everyone, everything I went to, I was like, this is a retirement home for fire chiefs, police chiefs, and military officers. Um, and I, you know, I've learned a lot. There's plenty of really, really great folks, but the reality is like, by sort of, either not making it a career where folks feel they have a voice or a place there uh, or actively trying to prevent that diversification of ideas, perspectives, uh, 
abilities, knowledge, experience. Um, I think a lot of people think that like when, when you're talking about this stuff, that it's like, we have to do this because it's like a political thing or it's a, um, it's some sort of like cultural thing, which of course it is to a degree uh, in some sense, but uh, diversity, especially when you're dealing with problems, having a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of ideas and knowledge actually <laughs> helps you solve problems much better. For someone who is not solve all the other problems that seem insurmountable, yes, you just have diversity of thought in in the upper ranks or any rank. Yeah, exactly. And so, for me to try to, uh, you know, I, again, I can sort of uh, because I feel like it's something I'm I care about and I'm passionate about. I'm gonna I'm gonna do all the effort that I can to to, you know, be a leader in DEI, but. To have folks who also experience it and know it and can maybe, uh, you know, say like, well, listen, like you're you're looking at this through your lens. You're not, you know, I, I, I'm I, there's basically two ways I can look at it through my personal experience or through the legal framework. And neither of those things is actually probably going to like move the, the you know, make it that much progress. Whereas like someone who experiences it daily can say like, well, this is a solution, but here's a better solution. Or here is something like maybe you haven't thought about. Um, and honestly, I think a lot of it is like people are kind of scared to sort of like uh, just bring folks well, in that. Scared to, to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, of course, please do. Because they're scared of the legal ramifications. If they admit to this, <laughs> they, they are afraid that it, they're admitting to liability and they don't, and so it keeps everybody kind of in their box. Yeah. You know, and, and so I apologize because I cut you off. No, 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 I was probably just gonna ramble on anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the, uh, <laughs> the where I was going was probably just putting myself back into the box. Uh, I, I, I guess, uh, so maybe the, the next conversation is then like, where, like, how, how do we, how do we start? Cause as much as I think we're, we feel like there, there is progress and there's some, uh, awesome people working through this, uh, and yourself included, obviously, like you're, you're getting out there and you're communicating, but like, you know, I am and in Georgia and, uh, that's, that's a, that's one part of the world. Like this has to be done everywhere where like for folks that don't have access to you know, individuals who can help them. What, like, where do they even start? I think that's like part of the problem is it just feels like, where do I even begin to chip away at this? So my recommendation is always, you know, let's say, you know, today's Friday, Monday morning, you get to your office as an emergency manager or working in emergency management and whatever comes across your, your email or on your desk. Here's a problem I have to solve. Great. Instead of let me solve it because that's what I do, or let me go ask my coworker, you bring the stakeholders to the table. You bring, you say, okay, I have X problem to solve. Let me bring our marginalized communities to the table. Let me bring um, our deaf and hard of hearing communities to the table. Let me bring um, our elderly populations to the table. Let me bring our neurodivergent populations to the table. Um, and let me bring, you know, the subject matter experts on this topic, um, this emergency management topic to the table. And we all come to the table and we go, all right, we are solving for X together. That bringing the stakeholders to the table, not just 
and be bringing the people that have lived this experience to the table because you trying to solve X on a Monday morning, you're going to go with the, the quickest, and this is human nature and also the nature of working in crisis, you're going to go with the quickest, most efficient based on your background. That's how you're going to solve it. And yes. that is not a problem. But it's kind of like, I'm about to age myself here, the old school <laughs> game of whack-a-mole, yeah. which is, cool, you solve the problem, but because you don't know what you don't know, you might have created 10 more. Yeah, it is one of those things where, uh, you know, like as you start to pull apart uh, the problem, uh, you know, it's like cockroaches, right? Like you're like all this stuff that you've ignored over the time. You're like, oh my gosh, it's, they're just everywhere. Like I, why, like, and, and that's, and that's where I think like, uh, like a lot of people are like, you know what, we'll just keep the lights off. We won't even look and we'll just, uh, we'll hope that everything is fine. Um, and I think again, like I, there's, there's like a, a sort of, a fear of also, uh, you know, being revealed um, as not trying or or just the embarrassment of failure that a lot of folks also choose not to solve this. And I think in my personal experience and, and I think um, in talking with other folks like you and, and other emergency managers, like when you bring in that, you include all those folks, like there's ownership of that problem in a way that would not exist in, in just trying to solve it yourself. And it becomes actually really, uh, I don't know if this is the right term. It's like fun to work on it. Cause you have like so many people like sort of like leaning into this that it's like, oh my gosh, like we have a community now. Like this is like a, this is not my problem anymore. This is like, we're going to work through this and it can be really interesting. And, and in fact, like, even if you're one of those people who's like, I'm a tech geek, like I want to learn about new technology. There's a lot of really new technologies that are helping uh, in this area. Come on in. Yeah. <laughs> so like just the, you know, if you're like an IT person, like that's the area that I'm super comfortable in. I just want to like play with radios and all this stuff. Well, guess what? There is a role for you at the table in this as well. Like, uh, and in fact, like that is, I think, what we all sort of enjoy in the job. Like when the EOC is churning and that machine's humming, like we are, we're all like that hive mind. It can be really, really fun to solve problems, but for some reason, we've just not done that for this. So I think having that perspective of like, well, I, it's not you alone. Like you can bring in all these other folks. Um, I, I think that's just so. That's awesome. Like it gets me fired up. Um, and and I know like, you know, again, like there's, this is a challenge around uh, the country. This is a challenge around the world. So it, it just, it can feel like there's no way to do it. But I, I think that's a great place to start is just engage with your stakeholders, which you should be doing anyways. Um, and we all have our planning cycles. So like just build it in the next time, even if you can't do it on Monday, although, uh, listening to Brandy, you should probably think about maybe Monday morning, just like bring this up at your staff meetings and everything else. Like, what do we do it? But if nothing else, start to build this into your planning and exercise and training cycles. And uh, that way, like if you can, just, I'm just going to no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say that way you're chipping away at it. So, yeah, absolutely. I will say be in doing this, be very cautious not to put additional burdens on your marginalized communities. True. If you don't have trusted allies in these specific community spaces, do an all call for them. Go to a local um, community organization that their entire 
you know, specialization might be, um, let's say, an older population or, um, you know, a neurodivergent population and express to them what you are trying to do and ask if they know of anyone in that community that would be willing to offer it. You know, it's, um, I, I hearken back to, and again, this isn't my lived experience. This is, um, this is experiences I've heard through colleagues, but it is the, it, the, doing that is the quintessential of back when kind of diversity as a buzzword first started as white people, us trying to figure it out, we would first go to our black or brown friends and go, can you explain this to me? And that was putting the burden on them. Um, try not to do that unless you know they are a trusted ally and that they they have the bandwidth to give it. Because living as a marginalized person in a systemic-issued culture would tire sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, you want to help people with tired. Well, and I think that, it, you know, uh, that is, I think, one of the challenge. again, you know, like I'm not trying to to sort of bring this back into law enforcement and stuff. But like, that is like, you know, a lot of the solutions are like, well, you know, why doesn't this population do X? And, you know, why it's like saying like poor people, why don't you just fix poverty? Like, you know, like it's (laughs) right. It's, it's like, well, there's, I mean, uh, uh, of course, Katrina was like a slap in the face for a lot of us. Like, oh, duh, like mass evacuation only works if you have (laughs) a means to evacuate whether it's physical or a car, I mean, like we, like there's just, it's such a complex and sort of complicated problem to solve. And there's so many like societal culture and, and political, you know, tentacles that are wrapped around this that, um, you know, but what we're ultimately trying to say is like, you can't use that as an excuse to not do something. So, um, I like the idea of like, you know, find, uh, the, the folks that are already involved in this. And of course there's community action groups. There's a lot of nonprofits. Your VOAD probably has a fairly good representation um, of this. Uh, churches, uh, mental health organizations, uh, if you have a, you know, your county health, your county mental health or whatever sort of like, um, you know, uh, agency supports uh, those folks. Um, you know, the social services, uh, there's plenty of like intermediaries that can uh, at least start the conversation and then find people within sort of their organization or within their population that they could bring uh, who are who are passionate about this. And um, but yeah, I think that's a really, really, really good point to just like don't put the burden on the folks that are already suffering to solve that problem and and make it sure it's a team sport like this is something we all have a responsibility for and that we should all be passionately working towards um and again i think with the it's like that every problem that we deal with right like it's that starting point that's the hardest part uh once you can get through that now it's like maintenance and you just build it into your system and eventually it just becomes part of your life like you don't think about it so and that's, that's part of the key, too, is don't just do this with the problem you need to solve Monday morning. Do it then with the problem on Tuesday morning. Yeah. And then the problem on <laughs> Tuesday morning. And then um, because just having just solving one problem does not give you the um, the mindset to then include all of those communities next time. Like it takes, you know, kind of a a full involvement with those communities before before ever trusting yourself to to answer or to speak for them. Yeah. Um, and so it's just kind of building that habit to 
um, to include them. And, and, and in fairness, when they are first approached, um, and I'm speaking broadly and collectively, um, they may have um, some desire to, they may not have the bandwidth. They may be like, you've never talked to me before. Why, why should I talk to you now? You know, EM are going to be met with resistance, but rightfully so, because nobody's paid any attention to them before. So there's a lack of trust. Um, and emergency management is also lumped in with public safety, which has a lot of issues um, within its ranks right now. So I say all that to say, don't expect everybody to be like, yes, I'd love to help. But it doesn't mean to not ask a second time, a third time, like kind of like I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't like to go out too often, but I still like to be invited. And eventually I'll show up. So it's, you know, just even if there is trepidation or hesitation in the beginning, don't let that, uh, don't take that personally. Um, and don't let that stop you from still trying to include them next time. That's awesome. I, I think we can, I think we should stop there because I've got, uh, I, we're definitely going to have this. There's so many more conversations. Actually, you know, we're trying to add more podcasts to our network. And I think that this is a, you're, you did a great job uh, in sort of explaining this in ways uh, I, this is, this is, again, I, I know who I am. I know sort of my lived experiences and, and my lenses and my biases. So hearing all of these, every time I have these conversations with, uh, people, I'm always learning. I'm always fascinated and it always charges me up to do better. And so I think the, the idea of just, you know, starting that conversation with, uh, with your communities, um, you know, with the people that live around you, with you is such a good place to start. Cause I think once you start to understand who you are in this picture and how they have all been perceived and, and sort of managed. And I mean that in like the, the negative connotation, we've managed this problem. We have not included them in the problem. Uh, will open up a lot of our eyes and, and make us all much, much better at our job. So Brandy, I, can't thank you enough. This was an awesome conversation. I'm 100% going to have you back on. And honestly, like I said, sure. I think maybe you should have your own podcast because you're very good at this and lawyers like to talk. This is like a nice little avenue where you can do this. And No, Zach, I have to talk offline because um, I have on my 2023 list of goals is to seriously consider a podcast, but I'm so much better on the fly, like doing content and calendars. Remember, I've done PR and marketing. Yeah. So I'm like, I really don't want to necessarily go back down that road. <laughs> but if somebody throws a microphone in my face, I'm good. So maybe live podcasting. I don't know. I'm not uh, sure. We, we do live. I uh, I, had, I debated uh, doing this live. I actually really like live as well because two things happen. One, so I did uh, stand-up comedy for a while, uh, for like a year, two years, something like that. And loved it, and uh, it made me very, very good at sort of public speaking. I, I, I foot stomped this. Everyone who's listened to me, like, oh, geez, here he goes again. But you know, that's that's something that we teach like baby lawyers, and in law school, if people have a fear of public speaking for their assignments or litigation, we tell them to go find an improv. Yeah, it's it's like, uh, in fact, uh, I'm working with uh, some folks. We're gonna have some episodes coming up specifically um, with. Uh, improv and, and comedy to sort of like thinking about problems and how to sort of solve them. But like one of the biggest things I think emergency managers, like a lot of us struggle with is just like, you have to communicate, like that's it, that's the job. So having, uh, you know, I, I think 
the podcast that is sort of like become a cliche in some circles or whatever, but having this uh, this sort of bully pulpit to get up on and talk about you know issues that you know you maybe people aren't exposed to is awesome and. So I like the live aspect of it because it makes you think on your feet. And like, we didn't actually uh, just like a lot of, we we only had a short conversation ahead of time what we're going to talk about. I was really excited to sort of like see where this is going to go. And it went very naturally to where uh, I think we all wished it would go. So uh, I 100% support you. I will do whatever it takes uh, to make sure you have a podcast because I think this conversation needs to be had. And, and in your circle, you're going to have a lot of folks that like I probably don't even know of and would have thought to bring on to sort of give them a voice as well. So um, so look forward to Brandy Mays. We'll be working on the branding and the na- na- you know the names and all that stuff. Uh, that podcast will be coming in 2023, 100%. Um, and again, thank you so much. If you, uh, for, uh, this is like the, the, like I hate this part, but it is the call to action, the influencer side of this. Like, subscribe, please comment. Let uh, Brandy know that you, uh, you want her to do the podcasts. <laughs> Uh, as well as like, if you have questions, comments, and you don't have to necessarily do it broadly in like YouTube or, or in a public thing. If you want to send me a message or, or Brandy a message privately, uh, she's pretty active on LinkedIn. So I'm sure if you, you know, uh, check in with her there, she'll respond. I know that I'm there's people. There. Also, I'm also pretty vocal and verbal on um, Twitter. Um, oh, nice. Oh, yeah, so- that's right. <laughs> I have a burner yeah, account. So I don't. My, my Twitter life is very different from my other <laughs> social media absolutely. accounts. My LinkedIn is very curated. Twitter is. <laughs> That's where she's getting real. Of, let me tell you how I really feel. Uh, <laughs> so but, yeah. if you want to, you want to stir some stuff up. Get on Twitter. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Let's keep this conversation going. And all of you who are listening, please go back on Monday morning when you get to your office or you're you're working from home. Like, just pause and think for a second, like, what can I do this week to uh, do a better job? Like, how can I start? And she's given you a lot of awesome uh, places to begin. Um, and like I said, please, you know, reach out to, to us. I can connect you to her if you have my contact information. But um, we have to do better. You have allies in this. Uh, let's all do better. Thank you again, Brandy. Thanks a lot. <laughs>